One of the great things about having two services, I get to hear all that, that twice, see, I get, and not just one time. Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, Matthew, chapter 11. I want to read a brief passage right at the end of the chapter, verses 28 and following. This is Jesus speaking, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Hear God's word. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That ends the reading of God's word. Um, the word preaching means to declare a message as the herald of the king. And to witness to that means to, to tell what happened to you. Uh, but the herald, the preaching, is to pass on the message that the king has said to declare. And the gospel message is unchanging. Now, I think it's our tendency to overcomplicate the message of the gospel because it is very profound in its simplicity, and there is power in simplicity. Uh, My object in preaching, or any person preaching the Bible object, should be not to be simplistic, but to be simple, and not to complicate what is a simple message. Um, Billy Graham was once interviewed by David Frost, and he said in his presentation of the gospel, he, quote, studied to be simple. It takes work to be simple. Generally, we think we have to study to be complex, but the gospel is an understandable message, and when the message is not understood, at least in its essence, it's more likely the fault not of the message, but of the messenger. Sometimes you and I, as we think of talking to others about Christ, we may be reluctant, thinking that we need to edit out certain parts that may be offensive, But the job of the herald is just to deliver the message that the king has sent. And so our task as believers is to pass on the gospel. So today let's look at um, one of the most simple times in the New Testament uh, where the simple good news is given forth in very few words but a very clear way. And that's here in these verses 28 to 30. It's called the Great Invitation. We know about invitations. Children receive invitations to birthday parties and invitations at this time of the year start arriving in the mail for graduation ceremonies and anniversaries at times and all sorts of special occasions. In fact, if I could pass a microphone around and ask you what is the most special invitation you've ever received, we would probably be surprised at some of the invitations that we've been given represented in this group. But this is the greatest invitation you will ever receive, that anyone has ever received. Note first the simplicity of it. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come, that's a simple, uh, a simple invitation. A child understands. It's like, come over here, come away from that hot stove, or, or, or come in this direction. It's a simple command to understand. It's one of the earliest words we learn to obey as toddlers. 
And then it's personal. He says, come to me. He doesn't say come to an event or a building or a denomination or a particular church, but to Jesus. No other religious founder said this. Buddha said the way to rest is to follow the Eightfold Path. He never said, come to me. Muhammad, founder of Islam, never said, come to me. He said the way to rest is to give alms, make a pilgrimage, pray so many times a day in a certain direction. He never said, come to me. Now, what Jesus is saying is personal. He did not just say, come to a general belief in God, but come to me as a person. Ten days ago, on April the 8th, at the age of 87, Anthony Flew died. If you took philosophy in college, then you probably had to deal with Anthony Flew's arguments against the existence of God. He grew up in England, his father was a Methodist minister, and yet at an early age he came to a position of atheism which he maintained the vast majority of his life. In 1950, he wrote a publication entitled Theology and Falsification. That's held and reputed to be the most frequently quoted philosophical publication of the second half of the 20th century. But something happened just six years ago. In 2004, Anthony Flew, this well-known scholastic atheist, announced that he had come to the conclusion that there is a God after all. It came as a shock to some of his fellow atheists, like Christopher Hitchings and others, but his conclusion came after months of soul-searching. In 2007, he released a book entitled There Is a God. Now, here's how he said he arrived at this change of mind. It was from studying DNA. He concluded that research into DNA had, quote, shown by the almost unbelievably complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved, end of quote. Although he was an evolutionist, he felt that evolution did not explain the beginnings of life. He wrote, I have been persuaded that it is simply out of the question that the first living matter evolved out of dead matter and then developed into an extraordinary complicated creature. Now the conversion, so to speak, he went through was away from atheism, but he never embraced the idea of a personal God. At best, he was a deist. He did not adhere to Christianity or any, any other world religion. What Jesus invites us to is personal, and it's specific. Come to me. Well, who is invited? Many of us qualify Here's how he describes this. All who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden means weighed down. Weighed down with the burdens of life. It may be work exhaustion. We live in a day of workaholism. It may be stress exhaustion, which is not restricted to adults. I read not too long ago about stress in children, that children as young as five today are developing ulcers and cholesterol levels are skyrocketing in children. Not only those who are exhausted and weary from work and stress, but also religious exhaustion. Jesus was speaking to a group that had been heavily influenced by the religious leaders of the day, like the Pharisees. Later in Matthew, he describes them, the Pharisees, as saying, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What he meant was they are giving all these rules and regulations 
telling you that this is how a person is made right with God, but it can't, it can't work and it's just a burden. For example, in the Bible, in the books, the Old Testament books of Leviticus and Numbers, they are filled with symbolic washings, religious washings of hands and so forth. The Pharisees thought, well, if some is good, then more will be better. So they moved away from the revealed will of God in the scriptures and started adding on the imagined will of God. They said that if you just wash now and then, then you ought to wash before every meal, ritually, this ritual, not just for cleanliness. And then you should wash after every meal. And then they wrote pages devoted to how much water you should use in the washing, how you should pour the water, how it should be stored, how you should you hold your hands. And so in that land that where water was scarce, gallons of water had to be set aside for these man-made rules regarding religious washings. Now, if you come from a background of legalism, if you grew up in a church or denomination that's heavily legalistic, you understand what Christ was talking about. It becomes a load on your back, and it's just a burden that no one can live up to. And so they were exhausted religiously, they were burdened down, perhaps, like us, with disappointments from life. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4, here in the middle of the day. Jesus' disciples have gone on. He sent them ahead to go purchase some things in the nearby village. And this woman comes out in the middle of the day to draw water at this public well. Obviously, she did not want to meet anyone. Her life is full of burdens and toils. Many, if not most of them, had occurred because of her own choices. She's an outcast, and yet what does Jesus say to her? Essentially, come to me. And he shows her compassion. She goes back to the village where she resides. She tells everybody, come, come meet this man. Come hear what he said. He told me everything about myself. Burdened down with the disappointments of life. Maybe burdened down with guilt. Do you remember the story Jesus told of the two men that went up to the temple to pray? A religious man and a very unreligious man. The religious man prayed a prayer of sorts. It was basically a grocery list of the good things about his life. The other man, a tax collector, a traitor to his own people in that day and age, can't even lift his eyes and look up. If he bows down, can only beat his chest and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He comes to Jesus. He's given rest. So if you're burdened with a load on yourself of which you wish to be free, then you qualify. Maybe that load is guilt or sorrow or anxiety or remorse. It may be the burden of a broken marriage, the burden of rebellious or ungrateful children, the burden of unemployment, the burden of declining health, the burden of caring for someone with declining health, or the burden of loneliness. In a group this size, there's probably at least one person or more who will go home today to an empty apartment or an empty house and the loneliness in your life is so thick you can almost cut it with a knife. You're invited. You qualify. All who are weary and heavy laden. What does he offer? In this simple offer, he, he, he gives rest. He gives rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Science tells us there are four levels of rest. There's physical rest, when we rest our bodies. There's sensory rest, when we rest our eyes, for we, do you know this, we expend a tremendous amount of energy through our eyes. Emotional rest, when we engage from the emotional ups and downs of life. And then there's mental rest, which comes 
from not using our minds. But Jesus promises more. The word for rest there means revitalization. It's a concept going back to the Old Testament where God's people were given laws and guidelines and even about agriculture, and they were not to farm the same land for so many years in a row, but occasionally they were to let certain plots of land lie fallow. And they were not to till them, they were not to plant them, they were not to harvest from them, so that it could, in a sense, be revitalized and be 